Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. Brad Edwards and Bryce Hales are here with you, helping you faithfully navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. We started this conversation early on in the COVID-19 crisis, asking the question, what is the kingdom opportunity here? Uh, What does it look like to lean into what God is doing instead of just resisting and trying to push back with the scarcity mindset? And so in season two, now we are bringing you our paradigm that explains and also helps uh, guide us into a better future around the themes of Jesus as King who brings us into his kingdom. And so uh, in our last episode, we talked about some of the problems that are inherent in our cultural moment as we have rooted for the wrong hero. We have embraced individualism as uh, kind of the dominant narrative. And there are both right-leaning and left-leaning expressions of trying to achieve our identity as an individual that look like secularism on the left, evangelicalism on the right, but both tend towards fundamentalism ultimately. Uh, If you missed that episode, you really need to go back and listen to that. This is really part two of that conversation. But we, we began to hint at what we see as the solution, which we're calling covenant which is uh, not less than evangelicalism in its best form. It's more than evangelicalism. It's Jesus as our king, but he is bringing us into his kingdom. And we live as citizens, not of this uh, earthly city that we uh, find ourselves in, but we live as citizens of his kingdom. So really what we want to do today now is to talk more about what is covenantalism? What does it look like to live in light of both king and kingdom? Or another way to ask that question really is to say, what does it look like to live as Christians in the world that we live in? And evangelicals have tended to answer that question with reference to the Great Commission. Um, At the end of Matthew, before Jesus ascends, he gathers the disciples uh, around him, his disciples around him, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we love the Great Commission. We we are not um, in any way slighting the Great Commission. But what we want to suggest is the Great Commission is not our starting point for engagement with the world. Because if you um, and you know if you are in a Bible believing church and you're hearing a sermon on the Great Commission, one of the points that you will always hear is that um, really in the Greek, what Jesus says is as you are going. He doesn't, it's not a command to get up and go. It's as you're going, which begs the question, where are you going? There's something that's already happening in the world. There is something in God's redemptive story that's already going on as we find ourselves now picking up the mantle of the Great Commission. And we think that's really the starting point for understanding what it looks like to live in light of king and kingdom. So Brad, what is what is already going on when Jesus says, as you're already doing this, make disciples and baptize? Well, first of all, I love to uh, uh, give Philip Yancey the credit that um, when Jesus was doing ministry, his Bible was just the Old Testament. And so you have to ask, like, what is the lens and what are the assumptions Jesus is building the Great Commission on a foundation of? And it is at least and very much so 
Genesis 12, right? The Abrahamic covenant where God called Abram out of Ur. And he says in Genesis 12, one through three, he says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In other words, God's love, his, the identity he gives, he's giving Abram a new identity that becomes explicit when he's then called Abraham later, but he's saying, I am going to bless you. I'm going to flourish you. The responsibility you have in receiving that flourishing is then to steward that flourishing, that blessing for the sake of your neighbors and for the sake of the surrounding nations. And um, when we see that word blessing and, and bless, in Genesis 12, it's very connected to the very beginning, to the creation mandate, when God tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it, right? To bring order and to b- build human society out of the bare raw resources that God created ex nihilo. Once again, the theme is stewarding. For what end? Shalom, right? The, the theme of stewarding is toward the, the human creational flourishing that pushes back the effects of the fall. And God says, you're going to need help with that. I'm going to bless you so that you can do that and bring that flourishing into every, every nation. And so when Jesus is even talking about the greatest commandment to love God and then love neighbor, it is respond to God's love and blessing, both vertically and horizontally. And that is the foundation. And so our response cannot be only to witness. It has to also be to flourish. And if, if we are reducing our, the mission of God to just the individual witnessing so that other people become Christians, we're missing the whole point of, um, I actually love how Anthony Bradley says this, um, answering the question, what is your salvation for? Why does God bless you? Why does God save you? It's so that you can be image bearers and stewards of all the gifts that God gives humanity in such a way that reflects his creational love. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what you're saying is, and again, Genesis 12, why Genesis 12? You know, well, all that's happened before Genesis 12 is the complete history of the primeval world, yes. right? It's global in scope. And in Genesis 12, God narrows his focus and says, out of all humanity, I'm going to choose this one guy, Abram. And yeah. it's through him, I'm going to choose a people to myself. And, Ab- and God calls Abram and he says, go. That's the first thing. So the king is commanding his loyal subject to go, but he's going into a kingdom. You're going to go into a new land. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to bless you. And as I bless you, all the people of the earth are going to be blessed. What, and what's so important to see here, and, and it's in connection and relationship to Genesis 12 and Genesis 1 and 2, right, is that Genesis 3 through 11 is basically God showing uh, and, and the Bible showing all of us what happens when humanity is left in, our, in the fall, in our brokenness, to our own devices, when we try to do this apart from God, condescending in love and grace to us to, to say, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to covenant with you, when we are just doing it on our own as individuals, we murder our brother, mm. right? We, yeah, we try to make a name for ourselves Yeah, apart from God. The most righteous person in the land was Noah, the same guy who 
after the flood subsides, everything unravels. It's not like he, he kept perpetuating the blessing and the righteousness that God was trying to, to, to save by eliminating all of the, the brokenness and sin. It, it wasn't enough. Even the most righteous person in the land was still fundamentally broken. Okay, Genesis 12, God says to Abram, you're going to need my help for this. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so what he does is he, he enters into, and we see this in Genesis 15 and 18, he enters into a covenant mm-hmm. with Abram and says, I will be your God and you will, will be my people. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is why we are, this is where we're coming back to and saying, look, faithfulness is not less than evangelicalism. It's more, mm-hmm. it's, it's king and kingdom. And Genesis 12 really shows us, uh, because the reality is for those, I, I think most of our listeners and people, even ourselves, are people who are, you know, hopefully thoughtful Christians, identify at least theologically as evangelicals, even though we maybe have some qualms with the way that use is being used, uh, that term is being used politically. Um, we understand that Jesus is the king, and we um, we really want to understand what it means that he's calling us into his kingdom, that his kingdom is coming here on earth. And yet we struggle uh, to live in light of that reality. Yeah. And, and Jesus even understands this when he's asked by the Pharisees, by the religious rulers, hey, what, what is God's greatest commandment? Once again, just like last time, they're you know, implicitly trying to trap him. But he says, right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, your na- and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, right? This is describing two spheres, our vertical relationship with God, worship, and our horizontal relationship with our neighbor, which is mission, right? And if we've right. only seen this through the lens of other New Testament passages, i.e. the Great Commission, we will reduce loving our neighbor to merely witnessing to them and telling them about the gospel. But Jesus is not just reducing love your neighbor to that. He's, re- he's actually connecting and rooting that as the, the, the simple expression of the Genesis 12 command from God to steward our blessing for the sake of others. It is not to achieve our identity. We are, we are gold. We are God's treasure. We are loved. We have nothing left to earn or do. We now can steward our resources for the sake of the nations and our neighbor. Right. And what Genesis 12 also makes clear is it's not, hey, Abraham, you are going to be the blessing to the to the world it's not individualism it's not kind of the great man of history the hero the celebrity who because he's awesome and stands up and says amazing things and has millions of social media followers that (laughs) the world becomes better Mm -hmm. it's it's not abraham as a individual it's the descendants of abraham as a corporate body yes and you see that reality fleshed out through the rest of the Old Testament. And every single time that, that God's people lose God's mission, when they reduce following God and being in a covenantal relationship to him as only worship, God allows them to experience significant hardship, significant uh, difficulty, persecution, and even exile, Right. Let me give you an example of this. In, in Isaiah 1, um, the passage that a lot of evangelicals are familiar with around um, don't bring, you know, Isaiah 1, 13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. 
he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He's basically saying, your worship is not something I want when you don't follow me into the kingdom. And I know this because in verse 16 and 17, he said, he, Isaiah, well, God through Isaiah says, this is why your worship and your sacrifices are unacceptable to God. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. I feel like so often in evangelical circles, when you hear the first part of Isaiah 1, where God says, you know, your prayers are empty I don't like this. I don't like, I don't care about your sacrifices. We, we tend to talk about that as a critique of formalism, mm-hmm. of sort of a ritualistic way of worship that is devoid from the substance or the heart. And I mean, clearly, again, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. And what God is saying is because you have, you have ceased to live uh, in, a, in, in a kingdom way, that is based on both. Uh, uh, you have be, you have ceased you you have ceased to live out the the kingdom reality of both worship and mission. I find your worship uh, detestable. So can we back up and talk a little bit about so what what Genesis twelve is bringing us to is is the kingdom reality. Yes, the king is there, but also it's as God builds His kingdom in and through His people. Uh, that we are brought in, that we, that we, because of his covenant with his people, that we experience flourishing and shalom, not just us, but the world as a whole. And so the kingdom uh, aspect of that, that we're, that we're looking at is expressed through both worship and mission. Well, yes. And, and to connect that with, with this line from Isaiah one in particular, God is dissatisfied with Israel's sacrifices and I would say evangelicalism's worship, because he knows that when worship, when mission goes, worship is soon to follow, right? When you look at the patterns and the cycles of exile and return in the Old Testament, it is when, when mission goes and God's people forget the reason for the blessing that God has, has, has given them, that it's to be stewarded for the sake of the nations, they start to worship idols. They start to let loose the moral uh, high ground that, and the center, to go back to David French's article, um, and we, it falls into idolatry. And this cycle is, is, it happens so many times throughout the Old Testament. The whole point is we need a savior to break out of the cycle. But after that, the whole reason for that flourishing to happen in the first place, for, the, for that cycle to be seizing is for the sake of cultivating shalom in the world so that we would actually yeah. do our original image bearing purpose of filling the earth and subduing it and, and creating order out of chaos to be many, many lowercase G gods or, and in how we bear his image and how yeah. we express our agency in the world. Yeah. And so it's, I think it's interesting to think about the way that worship and mission have played out in evangelicalism in the last, you know, let's just say 50 years or so, because the reality is evangelicals love worship. Yeah. I mean, theologically, evangelicals i mean there's there's been wars about there's been worship wars within the church kind of intermural intermural debates but however that takes expression evangelicals love 
to worship. And we know that we need to be involved in mission. And yet often what that mission has looked like has been either overseas mission, taking the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel before, or it's been reduced to, you know, a four spiritual laws, like the conversion of individuals. And so, especially in the 80s and early 90s, we saw churches really trying to do programs to train their people to do relational evangelism, which again is great, but it's a, it's sort of a truncated version Mm -hmm. of mission, which again, like, we're not anti-evangelism. We love evangelism. We're both evangelists and church planters. But when we're talking about mission in a biblical sense, we're talking about more than the conversion of individuals. We're talking about shalom, mm. which is wholeness. Uh, the, the English translation of the word shalom is peace, but it's just too small of a word. We think of peace as the absence of hostility, but biblically peace or shalom is wholeness, everything being right in the world. And it goes back to, to, to what you're talking about in Genesis 2, uh, the, the cultivation of the creation, of human beings under the rule and reign of God, working and living in such a way that chaos becomes orderly and beautiful. Well, this is why I love, like, you know, I, I mentioned last week um, that I have a man crush on David French. Uh, another one of my man crushes is is Andy Crouch and his book, Culture Making. And he makes the point that that cult, the cultural mandate, we call it the cultural mandate in Genesis 1 and 2, because that filling the earth and subduing it what that fundamentally is describing is the human endeavor that is creating culture and and we live in a culture right now that we're saying is hyper polarized and partisan and you it begs the question that if evangelicals have been faithful to the missio day that includes the cultural mandate how can we say that we have done so in a way that's flourishing and it's, it's when it's currently so polarized. Wow. So hold an admission of failure to fully obey the mission of God and to pursue his kingdom as our king. Dude, are you, let me, I feel like you just said something huge. Let me make sense of this. Is this what you're saying? <laughs> the, the fact that there is just incredibly polarized division in our culture right now is evidence of the fact that Christians have not been living out the kingdom mandate. That, that if we had been more faithfully living in light of both king and kingdom, that the partisanship and division in our culture would at least be less severe. I am saying that, yes, and the fact that evangelicals are justifying their slash our participation in that polarization because it's polarized is to say we either never influenced it in the first place or B, in our influence, we did in ways that were explicitly and directly unfaithful to the calling God has given us. It is a literal confession of sin, even if it is not repentant. It is, it is unknowingly confessing our own failure to live out the Missio Day in, in, in our spheres. Wow. And again, in some ways, that's no real surprise because the Genesis 12 mandate is 
people of God, you are going to follow the king by living out the kingdom reality of being a blessing to the nations, to not just to yourself. God's saying, I'm going to bless you as you are a blessing to others. And every time throughout biblical history that the people of God, uh, I mean, Israel's problem throughout the Old Testament is a failure to care about the nations. And every time they throw out this kingdom mandate and say, we're just going to hunker down, take care of ourselves, not worry about the others. I mean, Jonah is a classic example, the prophet who so despises the Gentiles that he will not go and tell them the gospel. And even when he does preach the worst sermon ever and the people repent, he's so ticked about God's mercy to the Gentiles. Every time the people of God turn their back on the nations, don't live in light of the kingdom, then what happens? Worship becomes corrupt in Israel and God sends his people into exile. And it's in exile when they have to begin to live again as a covenant community. They have to begin to repent of what they've done and who they are. They have to, you know, uh, Jeremiah 29 is the classic example. Like you're here in exile but you're going to in, uh, invest in the well-being of the city, they begin to live on mission, that worship is actually purified as well. Dude, you know, we, we started this, this entire podcast with the motivation that in the midst of a temptation to have a scarcity mentality, we wanted to have a kingdom mindset. And and we and we had ideas of like where there might be opportunities to to minister to the gospel to to like to witness to 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 be engaged to unify to all these things what if we've been thinking about it wrongly though and what if the the kingdom mindset actually is only possible on the other side of a deep cultural exile where evangelical influence is so dramatically reduced that we are functionally in exile culturally in a country that we have said evangelicals has shaped for a long time. What if the exile comes to us instead of us being carried away into exile? Because it is only on the other side of that in the Old Testament that God's people are able to full, like to experience shalom in the land. And it is only because of that, that exile that they're able to reconstitute their worship of God and then recover mission. It's hmm. almost like it still has to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. Yeah. So the part of the reality is that in some ways from a historical and like sociological perspective, it's not surprising that we are where we are yeah. in this, in this kind of moment mm -hmm. as people who, especially as Bible believing Christians, as people theologically who are evangelicals, because the the reality the uh, i mean i think brad and i you would both we would both have some pushback against the concept of christendom yeah. it's 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 a reality that for a long period of time <laughs> western culture has been so influenced by christianity that mission has been reduced to something we do in non-western places or the way that we do mission here is just about the conversion of individuals it's, it's almost inconceivable that we could have gotten to a different place. And yet we are now living through a time where the, the pace of change, the pace of change is being accelerated. And we are moving from, you know, a post uh, a Christendom culture to a post Christendom culture to whatever is next after that. Mm -hmm. 
which Mark Sayers would say is political ideology as religion, which holds a lot of water. But it's in that time when we are moving further and further from the sense that everybody basically agrees on the purpose of life and individual morality, that Christian mission actually comes back to the forefront. And so there's a tremendous opportunity for the church even as we are being winnowed numerically Man. to begin to live in light of this new reality and be the people that God has called us to be, to live lives of not just worship, but mission in light of the kingdom. Absolutely. And you see that pattern played out throughout the Old Testament too, with this idea of a remnant that is uh, within the covenant community of God. There is a smaller concentric circle within that, that is, are those who have been still on worship and mission and the the outside, the, the larger concentric circle through exile or persecution or uh, attack from enemies outside of Israel, whatever it is, that shrinks down until not much more than the remnant is left. And right, we see this when Jesus is crucified, the remnant is reduced down to Mary uh, and, and John. Yeah. And, but it is from that, and then the 12 disciples, and then the, the group that are play, praying in the upper room, that God reconstitutes his, his, his people and redeems his people, resurrects his people out of the ashes of that. Mm. I, I truly think if, I had, if you had to ask me what the, what ev- the evangelical church is going to look like a year, three years, five years, 10 years from now, I don't know how quickly this will go, but I see a winnowing happening over the next one to five years. Yeah. And, and following that, a, a reconstitution, a re-stabilizing, and then, and then growth again. Yeah. But I think we're well, in really long. And uh, I think we just have to say, because, I mean, I am, I am so hopeful, and I agree with you. I'm so hopeful in, when I think about the long-term trajectory of God's kingdom in this earth and his church, which is the primary instrument of his kingdom. And yet, let's be honest, Brad, like you and I are both church planters. A winnowing of the church in the next however many years is temporally terrifying Mm -hmm. for pastors, but especially for church planters. Yeah. Um, This is not going to be super fun or light or easy. No. Yeah. I mean, Barna released a... Uh, the results of a survey that showed that something like one third of church going people in the U S have stopped going to church since the pandemic started. Right. That's devastating. And what part of a covenantal mindset and a covenantal approach to this is the realization it's, (laughs) it's that it has to be intergenerational too. Yes. It's not just an individual. It's also not just an individual generation. It is, it is both an, a, a rejection of individualism, uh, f- like physically, personally, but also a rejection of individualism over time, which means that you and I and, and every Christian who are trying to hold the middle and to, to be salt and light in a Genesis 12 and a Genesis 1 and 2 sense also... All of us have to recognize that we may not ever live to see the fruit of that work, but God, mm. who is sovereign, is, is still in control and will bear fruit that we may never see and nobody may recognize, and that's still worth it. Because you know what? Our identity, our dignity, value, and worth is received. It is not achieved. Yeah. And so what that means, I mean, can we just like speak frankly for a second here? Like, we are both planting churches. Mm. I think we're... 
I'm five years into a church plant. I think this is probably the worst place to be in a pandemic because if your year one is a church planter, you've raised support and people are going to keep supporting you and you're not dependent on internal giving at all. Mm-hmm. If your church has been around for 10 plus years, you've got people who are faithful, who have, you know, they've grown up in that church, their kids were baptized there. Um, they're going to continue to be faithful. If you're like, we are like three to five years into a church plant where you're growing, but you're, you're dependent on continued growth. It's a really precarious place to be when you cannot meet in person for six months and maybe much longer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the reality is like, here's where I have to do the hard work of believing that my identity is received from Jesus. Mm. Like there's a very real possibility that the church I'm planting is not going to grow and be successful. It may go the other way as a result of the pandemic because of circumstantial things well beyond my control. And so then the, the question that I'm faced to grapple with is, am I a failure? Is, is that the final word? Is that who I am? Or am I a son of God? Because God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has put his name on me in my baptism. He has stamped you with his indelible image as a human being. And then he has stamped you with his, with his familial name as an inheritor. Yeah. And that stands true whether in exile or not. Yeah. And so, the, and so the privilege that we have then is that we are actually invited to be a part of his kingdom program. And so whether or not my identity is validated through the work I do, I'm a part of a much larger story of God building his kingdom. And man, and this, and this goes right back to the very beginning, right? Because if all of that is true, then, then you literally do not have anything that you can lose, right? Yeah. The, the dignity, the value and worth that every human being longs for and strives for and tries to source in a bajillion different places, that is so secure beyond any, any, any risk whatsoever because of God's covenantal commitment to, to you individually and his people corporately. Because of that, you can lay it all on the line for the sake of the kingdom. And when we don't, it is, this, this goes back to that worship and mission peace, because when we don't do mission, we don't get the reassurance that God's covenantal love is still anchoring us. That is what dilutes our worship, compromises our worship, and causes us to, to lose a love of God because we have, not, we have not stewarded his blessings in a way that we require his blessings. We've done it out of our own strength, our own spiritual or economic or otherwise influence or affluence. Yeah. So you're doing it, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm so passionate about this because it's like, well, it, when it's your job, you really don't have a choice too, which is helpful. Um, <laughs> it's helpful, but it's also my job because man, what greater privilege is there? Yeah. 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 And, 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 and because our job is this, that, that blessing is so real. Uh, we were able to see it because there's no way we can do this out of our own strength. Yeah. Okay. So I want to um, land this by asking you a, so what question? And I totally didn't realize I'm putting you on the spot here, but, he, but here, let me just do it and we'll see how it goes. Okay. So Brad, this is um, really interesting. And I think super compelling that, that being a Christian 
has to mean going forward, leaning into not just the the idea that Jesus is our mascot, but he is our king who's calling us to live in light of his kingdom, which is ever expanding in our world. And even if we're not seeing the fruit of that in the next months or even years, that we have a received identity and we are privileged to be a part of planting seeds that will bear kingdom fruit in subsequent generations. That's awesome. Let me ask the so what question. Let's say I'm a, I'm a person who's who's listening to this, and I know we've got a lot of pastor friends who are listening to our podcast. I'm thinking of the person who is, uh, let's say, the thoughtful Christian who is uh, a member of your local megachurch, who is maybe a small business owner, you know, not a vocationally committed um, Christian, mm-hmm. um, somebody who, somebody who is a committed Christian but not in vocational ministry. Sure. If I'm that sort of person and I'm listening to this, what difference does king and kingdom make in my life? And what do I do if I'm realizing that my, my Christian faith is tied up in an evangelical king-only way of following Jesus? And I, I, I'm, I'm wanting to know how to embrace the fact that his kingship calls me into his kingdom. Man, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think step one has to be this. If your question is, what do I do with that? I think the first thing we have to do is nothing. I think the first thing we have to do is hit the pause button, take a deep breath and remember who is at the steering wheel, right? It is not us. It is individualism that says that we are our own sovereign creators and we, our life is what we make it. This world is what we make it. And that's not true. This world is what God makes. And anytime you hear on the left or the right, a, a spirit of fear or a, a, an attempt to motivate people with fear, right? In, but leading up to the 2016 election, I can't remember who this was that wrote this article. There's an article that came out that called this the Flight 93 election. Um, referencing 9-11 and, and Flight 93 being the plane that went down uh, in Pennsylvania, but was supposed to have hit um, a fourth target. Um, and they were saying, the, the whole point of the article was that um, this election, because of Hillary Clinton, you should be motivated by fear. You need to take the plane down and crash it, dive bomb it into the ground in order to save the country because it's that bad. It's not because there is not a terrorist in the mm. Christ is in the cockpit. The king is in the cockpit. And if, as Christians, if we allow fear to drive and motivate and become our filter and lens for this, then we, we have already lost. So I think the first thing that has to happen in the midst of this is to remember that we are secure, right? If evangelicalism is kind of motivated by, uh, by guilt, and I think it is, I think secularism is motivated primarily by shame. And I think fundamentalism is primarily is motivated by fear. And it is yeah. the wings, it is the extreme poles of our polarization that are fundamentalist in, in the left and the right that are pulling people from evangelicalism and secularism into full-out fundamentalism. Covenantalism is security. It is comfort. It is constancy. Mm-hmm. It is contentment. It is peace. It is shalom. And it is the opposite of fear because of who is in the cockpit. And it's all of those things for the sake, not just of my own peace of mind, but for the sake of my neighbor. Amen. And when we have that lens, God becomes big enough to include 
our agency leveraged for the sake of our neighbor and he becomes big enough and and our neighbor and the need and the, the task of loving our neighbor becomes such that we need a God big enough to meet us there. King and kingdom, hmm. both. Wow. So well we, said. We have to resist fear and we can't resist fear on our own. And because both the left and the right use fear as a reason not to care about what the other tribe cares about. That is, that is part of what's pulling us apart. Yeah. Here's how I want to finish this. I want to finish this with a blessing. Yes, please. Okay. Bring it, bring it, bring because, it. Because the th- we don't resist fear by sucking it up and resisting fear. Mm. We resist fear when we know that the king is on his throne. Mm. And though events and circumstances have thrown us completely for a loop, they have not taken him by surprise in the least. Mm. And so I want to end this episode with a blessing to remind us of whose we are. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. He is the king and he is bringing his kingdom reality to bear in our world. And he invites you to be a part of that in Jesus name. Go in peace. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this has been a helpful episode. We hope it brings you some hope in the midst of a very anxious time. If what we're doing here on our podcast is helpful to you, we would love it if you would share this episode with a friend. We have no budget or marketing or anything like that behind this. Brad and I are just growing this podcast through word of mouth, and we would love your help by sharing with a friend or posting on social media or even just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That all helps us out a lot. Please join us next week when we are going to ask the question, why are we not bearing kingdom fruit as evangelicals? We're going to dive into the scriptures and shine the light on one of my favorite passages in the Bible to help us answer that question. In the meantime, check out our website, kingandkingdom.community, where you can leave a question or comment, and we would love to interact with you there. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Bryce Hales with my friend Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io, and our logo was designed by Danny Rankin. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world right here on Everything Just Changed.